Hello, this is Chris O'Regan, and you're listening to The Sausage Factory. This is episode 295 of The Sausage Factory. Welcome! In this episode, I talk to Charles Cecil of Revolution Software about their adventure game Beyond a Steel Sky. Now, Charles was originally on episode 91 of The Sausage Factory, way, way back in March 2016. You remember those halcyon days where things were simpler and we weren't locked up scared of the air itself. Sorry to remind everyone of that. But if you're listening to this a year or two from now, I'm sure that's all over, right? Please? Yes? Right? Anyway. Be that as it may. This episode is really good fun to chat to Charles again. We still reminisced about the old times that we did in that previous episode. So we delved in there again. It's lovely. But this is about a, a sequel to a very old game. Um, and uh, But Beyond a Steel Sky is um, a sequel to Beneath a Steel Sky, which is an old, um, very funny and very well-written and designed and put-together adventure game. Traditional adventure game. Not an arcade adventure game. A traditional adventure game. Just like Beyond a Steel Sky, although rather than a point-and-click interface, it uses a more third-person action-adventure kind of interface. But ultimately... It is definitely an adventure game. That's enough about me rabbiting on about this. Let's uh, delve into this episode. Chris, from about six, seven weeks ago, would you be so kind? Uh, thank you. Charles! Chris! It's been a long time. It has been a long time. It's been a good number of years, although it seems like just the other day. It does. It's been four years, everyone. Uh, Charles Sessels was on episode 91 of the Sausage Factory, back in March 2016. Oh, those innocent days. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a lot's, a lot's changed since then. So, most of it not for the better. No. Some of it's for the better, though. We've got the Switch yeah, some now. some of it is. You've got the Switch yeah. now. Come on. I mean, the Switch is great, isn't it? I love the Switch. Well, as I call it, my Animal Crossing machine, but let's not go there. Untitled Goose Game, but I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm happy to give on that. <laughs> um, but uh, and also Apple Arcade didn't exist either, and that's a very relevant point to, to make. It uh, is, and, and that I love too. Yes. Oh, 
wow, turn my Apple TV box into a video game console. Who'd have thought it? Up in, up until then, it was delivering Netflix and YouTube videos, and then all of a sudden, there you go. Um, so, if you want to know more about Charles's background and his inspirations and that kind of thing, we can go back to episode 91, because I'm not going to ask him again. That's just rude, everyone, as is most of the returning guests, which Charles is not the first return guest, as regular listeners will know, because we've been going so long now that we've had many developers reappear, because games take a while to make and then they think they're going to take them two years it takes them five but we're still here we're still here and i'm very happy to say so rather than ask the four, first four questions as regular listeners will know we'll just ask the last one of the first half so we can get right into what is beyond a steel sky which is what principally we're here for so charles what are you playing right now what am I playing right now? Uh, I'm playing Black Sad, which is an adventure that's very high production values. Didn't get great reviews, but I'm really enjoying it. Um, I, I, I mentioned Untitled Goose Game. I know it's very late to the party, but I played that and loved it. Magnificent, um, isn't it? It's, it's just no violence, but no, yet there well, is. I think, well, uh, that's that's a very subjective um, way of putting it. No, no, um, no deathly violence. No, no mortal no. violence. No, but mental. Oh. But plenty of mental violence. Yeah. Yes. Um, yeah. The, the only thing is that they really should have put a story in there because there should have been something driving the the, the quest, um, and it would have been a lot stronger. I mean, one of the games that I played probably a couple of years ago, but I really loved was Inside. And Inside didn't have a story, but there was enough of a, a thematic element that drove you to the end to, 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 to grip you. And I think that um, they missed a trick with Untitled Goose Game by not having that same level of thematic narrative. Yeah, I think they were expecting the players to make their own stories. And that's fine. But you're right. It would have been nice to just put something in there. I mean, why are you a goose? What's he doing there? Or he or she? What are they, sorry? What are they doing? You know, what, why are you terrorising this town? Doesn't matter, you're a goose, get over it. That was their, their retort, would be to the point where they didn't even know how to title the game. <laughs> That's true indeed. That's true indeed, yes. But I do remember attending a fair few events, which I like to do, because, you know, we, when yeah, they used that- to exist. Actually, the last game I played was Pac-Man because, um, I, I don't know, you, you may have heard of Game Republic, which is an excellent networking event. Right. Sorry, uh, organization, uh, organized by the supremely brilliant, uh, Jamie Sefton. Uh, and it's for Yorkshire developers. And one of my proudest moments was beating everybody at Space Invaders. Now, admittedly, I was, I was playing Space Invaders when I was about 90, 18, 19, you know, um, because it had just come out. So I have had a lifetime of playing Space Invaders, but I was very pleased to be able to beat everybody else and win um, a, a, a T-shirt, a Maya T-shirt, and, and, and a mug with a very complicated uh, equation on it that related to, um, to, 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 to uh, 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 pixels and um, ray tracing and uh, something like that. It was something to do with ray tracing. I don't remember exactly what. And, and beside which... When I looked at the equation, it meant absolutely nothing to me. But nevertheless, I won it for for winning at Space Invaders. That is great, because what people never understand, I know you understand it, but most people, when they first get out of Space Invaders, they just make the common errors. Like, why are you shooting there? 
It's never going to hit anything. Yeah, but I can. Well, you're not. Sh- they're not going to go into the bullet, are they? They're going the other way. Well, why are you shooting? Well, be- no. There's there is extraordinary treaties, techniques written about what is seemingly a benign game. It isn't, everyone. Yeah. Yeah. It really no. isn't. There's and it's really there. all about the point at which your 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 bullet reappears on the front. Yeah. And just absolutely making sure that that's at exactly the right point. And, and, and obviously if, if one of these space invaders crashes into, into the bullet, you die. But if you've released it just milliseconds before, then you get it. Then you kill this, this, this alien invader. And it just reminds me of the recent, recent events or recent uh, episodes that we've recorded on the show. We've had a lot of arcade sort of twin stick shooters or, stick, or, or games that are pure arcade games. Very pure, just like so transparent, and they wear their heart on their sleeves, saying, This is what I am. And I'm not going to the realms of you just got to get good, but it definitely is a case of you need to know where you are relative to everything else, and also your projectiles and what, where they're going to hit. You know, to spamming the button in the vain hope of actually hitting something never works <laughs> in games like that. Never works. And, you indeed know, not. It, indeed, and in the previous episode of Kane and Ritz featured asteroids. Another favourite of mine. What do you think of asteroids? Asteroids, I always found quite complicated to um, to control. If I'm totally honest with you, mm. um, I, I was more of a missile command, um, oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. and and then the tank game. You know that 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 felt to me easier. I, 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 there's something very pure about asteroids. Yes. Um, but I, I found, as I say, I found it a little bit difficult to control. I, I seem to remember, so I wasn't a huge fan. No, Galaxians, so now you're talking. Yeah, yeah. There's some weird stuff in that game that, again, people don't understand. They just think, oh, it's just straightforward. No, it's not. No, it's not. If it was, people wouldn't still play it. <laughs> you know, it would be tedious. But no, it's great to, 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 to delve into that aspect of, of games, of, of actually thinking about the purity of them, just getting yeah. down well, to brass tacks. Well, actually, Chris, there is a relevance to, to this in that mm. um, Space Invaders, uh, I first came across Space Invaders, and I think it had probably uh, only recently been released in about 1980, and, or released in the UK. And um, I, was, uh, I was sponsored by Ford. When I left school, I was going to, um, I, I got onto a, a good degree in engineering. Um, at Manchester University, and I, I got a sponsorship with Ford. And, and while working for them uh, as a management tr- engineering trainee, uh, I met a, uh, I made friends with somebody called Richard Turner. And we, we used to go and find uh, space invaders and sit and compete against each other. And I absolutely loved it. And he just started a little games company called Arctic Computing in Hull. And um, we, we, we watched uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark together and said, and he said, this would make a really good adventure game. Uh, and I said, really? He said, well, why don't you come up to Hull and, and, and I'll show you what I do. And um, we drove up to Hull and, uh, of course, he was a bedroom coder. So uh, went into his bedroom. Um, he lived, well, it was his parents' house. And he showed me some computer games and it just blew my mind. Um, they had a TRS-80 um, and he said, you should write some adventures. So I did. And that was wow. it. That was the beginning. TRS eighty. That's a machine. You can, you can, they would. They just people use that as opposed to the you know more the speckies and stuff to to develop on. As far as I understand, because it was just easier. And then they would you know just shove the machine code across and 
It's more complicated than that, I know, but... Uh, no, that's, that's exactly what that's exactly yeah. what they were doing. They were using yeah. the development, I think, partly because its keyboard was so much better. Um, yeah. yeah. And, and what Richard had done is he disassembled the ROM of the ZX80 when I first yep. met him, and he printed a listing of exactly what the ROM did, which allowed people in machine code. And, you know, machine code is wonderful. Yeah. I mean, one of my complaints, and this is going to be a... Uh, for, forgive me for getting negative for a moment, but, um, you know, we, we all learnt... Obviously basic. Um, and then we learned, I learned a little bit of machine code. Um, I was never enormously good, but a whole generation of my age started learning, you know, to program in, in, in basic and then machine code. And so successful was it that the government put computer science onto the curriculum and we were world leaders. We were way ahead of everybody else. And then Tony Blair decided to scrap computer science because it's too hard and replace it with ICT. And every child, you know, who ever came across ICT describe it as the most boring subject ever because everybody knew already. And, and the government, the education minister, whoever he or she was, um, had threw away this incredible lead we had because somebody told Tony Blair that the subject was too hard. I mean, it's terrifying. Yeah. And, yeah. They tried and, to and recover, didn't they, about 10 years it, ago, but. They, they did. And the, yeah. the reason that they recovered, or sorry, the reason they tried to recover was that um, Eric Schmidt, who was then the chief executive or chair of Google, came to, this was about five or six years ago, came and gave a talk at the Guardian um, Edinburgh Television Festival. And he absolutely lambasted the government and said, you created a generation of polymaths and you threw it away for no good reason. And, you know, love Michael Gove or hate him. Um, at least he responded to that. I mean, he didn't respond to us because, you know, Ian Livingston in particular was really pushing. I was pushing. A lot of us were pushing. Yeah. yeah. When we heard the story. We were so outraged. Um, and I don't think it was it, I don't think it's, it struck any sort of chord with the government until, as I say, uh, Eric Schmidt actually talked about what a terrible waste this had been. Mm. You're right. Uh, and. Uh... You know, the, the, the understanding of assembly these days is less prevalent, uh, unless you're writing drivers and things like that now. Um, yeah. but, uh, it's, you know, the high level languages, we all call them high level, C++, et cetera. Yeah. Still, you know, I, I, personally, I understand basic and C++ now. Assembly is, um, is leaked from my head. Although I would understand the basics for eight, for Z80, but not for the current process. Do, do you remember what, do you remember what return the hexadecimal value for return was in Z80? Oh, God. No. C9. C9. That must ring a bell. Yes. Of course. Because <laughs> then that would trigger a lot of... Yes. Oh, yes, the joys of Boolean logic without it. <laughs> <laughs> In, anyway. And, and, and actually, I'll tell you one more thing, and I know that I'm taking you off the subject. Um, of course, uh, you, you know, every every um, mobile phone has a risk chip in it. Yes. Sorry, it ha has... Um, uh, has oh my gosh, my brain's going. Oh, my, my, my brain's going. Um, uh, but, 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 but. Okay, we'll move on. I'll come back. That's fine. I think it's the arm trip, isn't it? Uh, it is the arm trip. Yeah. Thank you. That's yeah. exactly what it is. Yeah. So now, do, do you know where arm came from? Yeah, it's from the BBC Micro. God Indeed. bless them. They tried to cover their tracks, so they yeah. now call themselves advanced risk machines. But we know them as Acorn Research. Indeed. Um, as yeah. the BBC. And, and that, again, is a really interesting point because ARM could only really have come from Britain 
because while we had 1K, and one of our programmers at Arctic wrote a 1K chess program. I mean, absolutely extraordinary. Yeah, I, and yeah. the Americans had 16K. So by to, to us, they had vast amounts of memory that they were yeah. squandering, which yeah. is why later they would be writing in high-level language, and we were writing in low-level language because we just simply had no choice. We had slower machines. We had less memory. We had to do that. And, 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 and that's what made so many of our programmers from that era so brilliant. Yeah, yeah. And, we, you know, we're... The, the mostly hurtling towards retirement now, sadly, but uh, a lot of them are still, including yourself, are still there in various, very senior positions. Uh, but they still, you know, understand how it all works, and that's really important. Yeah, and understand the limits of the medium, um, or not, as the case may be. Because uh, nowadays uh, it's quite hard to find a memory leak because about three hours in, you go, why is this game slowing? Oh. <laughs> It's finally filled up the memory that this machine's got. There's like this 64 gigabyte monster. Like, oh, there you go. <laughs> no, indeed, indeed. But, but the funny thing is that memory leaks existed like 30 years ago, and yeah. there are still memory leaks. And yes. the, the, the great thing is that so much is circular. So much, so many of the problems that we encounter now, you you, you recognise patterns, and those patterns don't actually change. The technology changes. The memory changes. Everything changes apart from the how they turn out in terms of, um, you know, the, 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 the repercussions of this particular um, error, which is, which is often very similar and has been for, for, as I say, over a period of 30 years. Yeah. yeah. Well, gone down memory lane. Lovely stuff. Um, that's Sorry fine. about that. I've already no, taken no, no. you off, off track, haven't I? That's fine, because we did talk about space invaders, and then I started talking <laughs> about asteroids, so we're both to blame. Uh, and I would highly recommend you listen to the episode about asteroid because there's the little spaceship, apparently. It was called Little Bill, and he was vicious, and he would actually had a routine that interacted with the player, depending on what they were doing, which is why he was so difficult to kill. <laughs> oh. <laughs> and he was like, really? He said, yeah. He's vicious. He was meant to be. Yeah. And he would take you out. That was his job, to take you out. Stop well, I shall, I, shall, I, shall, I shall play it again with, um, yeah. and, and view it through new eyes. Indeed. Even the, the limited, lim, limited resources they had, and you can relate to this, they had, you know, they, 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 they did what they could with what they had, and it was amazing. Yeah, oh. yeah. That's the end of the first half, a different first half, everyone. I hope you've enjoyed it. Let's move on to the second half of the show, where we delve deep into Beyond a Steel Sky.
So, Charles, before we can do that, we need to discuss or describe what you believe in your own words, what you believe Beyond a Steel Sky to be. So what is Beyond a Steel Sky? At its heart, Beyond a Steel Sky is an adventure. Um, people will uh, recognise the sort of point-and-click uh, basic puzzle, puzzle structure, but what I was very keen to do was to transcend point-and-click because the weakness of point-and-click is that you have a very limited armory from a gameplay perspective. You have um, things in your inventory, you have people you can talk to, you have hotspots, and it's really a combination of all three. And a lot of developers uh, make the games harder just by making the puzzles more obscure and, uh, you know, some would say contrived. And Revolution, we've always tried to make our puzzles as logical as possible, uh, as hard, you know, challenging, but logical. And um, what I wanted to do with Beyond a Steel Sky was go back to the basic ideas, some of the basic ideas that we've developed over 30 years since the company was founded in, uh, in 1990. And one of the very early ideas was uh, virtual theatre, which was characters walking around talking to each other. And uh, we developed this in the second game that we wrote, the, uh, which is Beneath the Steel Sky. And one of the puzzles that I was particularly proud of was that a virtual theatre character, Lamb, would move around the world. Then you'd take an elevator, go down to his apartment, and you could subvert the system by going into the, the, the supercomputer, which, we, which was called Link, uh, removing his privileges so that he could no longer go down. And that felt to me like the op an, a, offering an opportunity um, of both subverting the system through uh, the, the manipulation of the AI system um, and, and then how that affected characters. And that was the base on which Beyond a Steel Sky was designed, uh, a base of virtual theatre characters walking around the world, responding to changes in the world that were caused by the player subverting the, the Internet of Things, the AI system. And then on top of that, we would have uh, adventure puzzles involving objects and people and, 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 and all the rest of it. So what our, what our vision for this was, uh, obviously, you, you and people who've played it are in a much better position to judge whether we achieved it or not. But our vision was very much to transcend the, the, the point and click by putting this much more dynamic world underneath from which puzzles could ultimately emerge. Emerge is a great word because some aspects of Beyond the Steel Sky, now bear with me on this train of thought if you don't mind, and it would embellish on what you've just said, is one of my favourite games of two years ago was Horizon Zero Dawn. Okay? Yeah. Horizon Zero Dawn is uh, actually a game a lot, of, a lot about chaos created by the player. There were times when I'd be wandering around a road and then I'll see uh, one of those giant crocodiles and go, I'm going to just, I'm just going to just turn that one and see what happens. It's just what's the disruption. And then I'll do that. And that, the submersive nature of me trying to break the world I'm in is very appealing. And I believe Beyond a Steel Sky really feeds into that. Not to the point where you break it to, it becomes stupid, but just the you subverting or trying to create change for good or ill generally when i was doing that stuff in horizon i was doing it for good because i was trying to actually stop these things terrorizing people and uh, by them letting them destroy each other 
Um, and I won't go into the forgotten story, but that's there's 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 a commonality between that, and that's one of the reasons I really enjoy both Beneath and Beyond Steel Sky games, and they do sit very comfortably together. I'm happy to say, and we'll talk about that later in the, in the show. But uh, yeah, I just you're right. You've hit something in you know, there. The emergent experience of the uh, you know as as the player. And does more and, and expands more and solves more puzzles. The world opens up just that bit more, bit more, bit more. And it's the same, you know, and it's just not immediate, so you don't get overwhelmed. It's nicely done. It's just very nicely sort of like, well, if you do this, and if you, cause and effect, everyone, cause and effect. If you do this, do this, do this. See, look, now you can do this. Hey? And it's, it's, it's just lovely. So, yeah, very well designed on that regard. So thank you. Oh, thank you. First question, then. You already mentioned this, but I want to delve into it a little bit more. At its core, and you may disagree, but I believe at its core, Beyond the Steel Sky is a point-and-click adventure, to a point. But it doesn't have the burden of that standard point-and-click interface. In fact, there is no pointing or clicking at all. You are controlling a, a, a character, uh, um, uh, Robert Foster, uh, in the third person. Great. Um but it doesn't have that interface. So how is this altered how you inform the player what they can and cannot do? Because that is the principal aspect of any action or puzzle adventure game is that it must know what they can and can't do. And once yeah. you understand those parameters, the puzzles become easier to understand. Okay. Well, Part of that is achieved through the uh, approach that we made in terms of the graphics. And we employ a tune rendering system that uh, we worked with um, our collaborator, our art director, Dave Gibbons, um, who is a friend of Revolution and a friend of mine. Um, he is best known probably for uh, his comic book Watchmen that he wrote in the 80s. And when we wrote the original game, we'd, we'd worked with Dave then, and, and the, uh, the Virgin Marketing people had called it an interactive comic book, which I think was somewhat untrue, um, since the game itself uh, didn't look like a comic at all. But the advantages, there are several advantages in seeking a comic book style. The first one is, of course, that it complements and um, it, it fits with the style that Dave brings. But secondly, from a gameplay perspective, it allows the player to see around the world and see the things that are likely to be hotspots, things that are likely to be relevant for the gameplay. And the second element, uh, again, the gameplay rather than the aesthetic, is actually quite important for exactly the reason that you've just uh, implied in your question, that the player does need to know what they're likely to be able to interact with and what is just noise in the background. So by using the tune rendering, we, our, our, our vision, our objective was very much to make it clear uh, what the player could and couldn't interact with. Yeah, it's really, really elegant. And it's just like, oh, well, there's a thing there. There's a little reticule. I'll pop over there and see what's up. Oh, it's a gang gang bird. Excellent. <laughs> uh, and uh, that's the very beginning of the game, everyone. I haven't spoiled anything. Um, so, um, next question. This is about narrative or the story now. I found it always amusing and, in, and it made me smile that, to find that the innocence, relative, I believe there's a little bit of innocence going on with Robert Foster, the main protagonist, 
in Beyond the Steel Sky, uh, despite his dealings with the Student City in the past. Why has that been retained? Why he's he's just a little bit naive sometimes. Okay. Why is that? That, that, that is from a narrative perspective because we want the player to learn at the same time that Robert Foster learns. So in the original game, um, a helicopter comes, and uh, I won't give you any spoilers, but because uh, this is all in the opening comic book, a, uh, a helicopter comes, abducts him, blows up his village, takes him to Union City, he escapes. And he's left in a strange city, and he has no idea what the city's about, he has no idea why he's there. So both Robert Foster and the player are left with no knowledge. Obviously, uh, quite a few years have passed, 26 years have passed since the original game. So we, we wanted to acknowledge that, but not have 26 years, but to have 10 years. And the reason that I was keen on 10 years was I felt that enough would have changed for the world to feel unfamiliar again. Now, at the end of the original game, uh, Foster leaves his his uh, his friend, his pal, um, AI Joey, in charge of the city. And what this game explores is how the city has changed, for the good or bad, under the control of an AI, whose motivation is, from a very benign perspective. To make the people happy. So Foster comes into the reason that Foster couldn't have come back in the meantime from a from a from a, a plot perspective is because then he would know what was going on in Union City because he would have seen it. So for exactly the reason that you've just outlined, it was important that he came back knowing nothing so that once again the player and Foster are on the same level and can discover. Because one of the core things, one of the core objectives of the game was to design it such that if people hadn't played the original, it didn't matter at all because we would be able to give the player all the information that they needed throughout the game. But part of that required Foster to come in afresh as he did the first time round. Absolutely. And you can't expect people to have you know, necessarily played the first one because you say he's 26 years old. There have been now people were born when that game came out, left university and started their careers, uh, and so kind of midway, well, midway through it. But uh, you know, so that's that's a that's a thought to, to bear it in is, mind. It, it is. I mean, r- r- bear in mind that you know our hard that the hardest hardcore fans, I think, were probably in their formative years when they played Beneath the Still Sky. So they were probably seventeen, you know, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Mm-hmm. So you know, they're they're, they're now forty-ish um, and. Um, that, that's, that, that's, the, that's the real hardcore, the most critical group, certainly, of mm. that age group. We, we're actually lucky enough because the game was written um, in MS-DOS first time around. And when Windows supported, stopped supporting MS-DOS in, in the late 90s, the game effectively was dead, and, and we thought it was dead. And then a, a bunch of uh, adventure enthusiasts, uh, enthusiasts called ScumVM, you, you probably know them, yeah. Uh, yeah. approached us and... Uh, asked if, if we could, if we could give them the source code. Uh, and from our perspective, we really had nothing to lose at all. So we gave them the, the source code and a little bit of support. And these wonderful people then converted, um, the game from, from MS-DOS to, 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 to run, 
uh, on the Scum emulator, and, um, and 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 the game because of that, the game has been available ever since. But yeah. had Scum VM not come along, the game would, would would effectively be dead because nobody would have been able to play it anymore. No, only available on good old games and stuff like that, which is a marvelous service, by the way. Yes, 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 yes. Oh, yes, the amount of times I've delved into that, and I remember this. And then you play for 20 minutes and go, yes, I'll put that away now. But, um, uh, yeah, it's, uh, some, there's still some classics in there, but yes, uh, I want to ask the next question then I've got. Um, I, I love the little logic puzzles. That's my brain, but I just love the logic puzzles you have with the scanner. And it reminds me a little bit of Bioshock and, and other games or maybe even, um, of the similar games that have, these sort of like inbuilt mini game logic puzzles that you have to solve to overcome, and uh, it's, it's it's a lovely sort of like the the the, the diagrams are very sort of they use the, the symbology that we're used to for, for flowcharts and stuff that makes it much more appealing. How did these come about? How did that sort of were they always there? Was it always something you had in mind in uh, Beyond the Steel Sky to put these little logic puzzles in, or was it added in later? No. It was. It was. It, it came in a little later. So the idea of, um, as I say, the ability to subvert the world, um, and and virtual theatre, actually came about very early. There's um, uh, a, a, a journalist, ex-journalist called Richard Cobbett, who happens to live in York, and I'd written a couple. I'd, I'd read a couple of the articles that he'd written about adventures, um, and really enjoyed them. And when I heard that he was in, in York, I actually got hold of him and we hooked up. And he did a really, really valuable analysis of the original game and um, gave us some really, really useful pointers. But I'd actually wanted to write some games using Scratch. I don't know if you know the programming language Scratch, but I was it's, it's a kid's language where you, you drag blocks around. And it felt like me to me like a perfect way to integrate into an adventure. And I was trying to think how to do that. And that was a few years ago. And then I kind of forgotten about it. And then when we started talking about subverting the world through the equivalent of Link, which we call Minos now, then it struck me that actually the ideas that I'd had for a system based around, you know, similar to Scratch actually would work perfectly well. And we, we went down really complex rabbit holes. And then pulled it back and just made it really simple because ultimately the important thing was that the you, you describe it as a mini game. I, I'd actually disagree with you slightly because mm. a mini game implies that you go into a game which is is not really it's like a black box. It's not really affected by the world, um, and you solve it and it's opened up. Uh, it's unlocked a, a lock and you can progress. Whereas what we wanted from the Minos system and the hacking system was for it to change the world in the multiple ways so that you could then explore what happened. So, you know, um, as, as uh, and I hope it's not too much of a giveaway, but in, in the first section, you know, once you first get your, your scanner, you're taken over to a vending machine. And that vending machine is very simple. You can um, you can look into the logic and it says if you scan your hand, if you've got permission, it'll give you a, a soft drink. If you don't, it'll give you a polite refusal. Or if if the machine um, uh, recognizes that it's being um, vandalized in some way, it'll set off an alarm. And what you can do because it's been hacked is you can take this this hacker that the diagnostician uses just to analyze 
and you can actually change elements. So you can cause somebody who has permission to, instead of getting a can of drink, you can move the alarm. So the alarm goes off and that, that then attracts the droid. So what, what we wanted to do was allow the player to play with the environment so that characters and then watch what would happen. And, um, and, 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 and I'd say that I, I like to use the term puzzles emerge rather than an emergent game, because I think an emergent game is too grandiose a title. But solutions emerge from player actions and player uh, exploration um, and experimentation with the system. And, and that was very much our vision for that. Yeah. What I love about, uh, before you even get to that point in the game, you have to jump through a fair amount of hoops before you get there. They're lovely hoops, uh, and they it definitely when you get that hack, that hack, when you finally get it, it's a real like oh, this is it. Now, now, now I'm talking. Here we go. This is it. I, I've 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 got a hacking thing. I can hack my way through into this city. It'll be great, and it kind of works. <laughs> eventually, you do you do yeah. hack your way into it. Um, in the not the game doesn't work. I'm saying the actual feeling of oh, I've taken over the world. What you? Kind of. Well, Chris, should I tell you a secret? Should I tell you a secret? Yeah. You, you know the um, the waterfall, the uh, uh, holographic waterfall? Indeed, yes, yeah. There was going to be a whole section behind that. Wow. And um, I remember sitting down and playing it and going, oh, my God, this is three quarters of an hour game, and everybody knows they want to get into the city. And so we, we, we'd done some design. We hadn't created any assets or anything. But uh, there was this sort of realisation that actually the player wanted to get in. And we felt that three quarters of an hour, maybe slightly less, was about the right time to, uh, to, to, to hopefully excite the player, to give them an expectation, and then finally deliver that as they get in through, the, um, through those main gates. Yeah, yeah. Last question, then. And uh, all good things come to an end, but there it is. Um, and we haven't covered this, but I think this is really, really important part of uh, uh, Beyond a Steel Sky is the music and the score. Um, I found the music to be, I'm going to use the word informative, which is very strange, but bear with me, is that it really changes when something significant happens. When you've done something or things have progressed and you've actually changed the story in some way or you've unlocked an area or you've done something significant, music is really kicked in and says, hey, let's see, you've done a thing. Hey, how did that come about? Was it always there? Was it always the intention to do such interactive um, score? Well, we actually worked with a local company, Pitstop. Right. Um, and we, that they, um, uh, I know, I know um, John Sanderson, uh, I've known him for, for, for a number of years. And we've always kind of intended to talk to him. And he asked if he could do a pitch for the music. And he had um, a young uh, composer, Alistair. And uh, I was just really excited by the music. What, what we wanted was a combination of not so much cyberpunk, not all electronic, but a, a recognition that there was electronic music. Um, but then it was also the classic orchestral score. Because, of course, we'd worked with the wonderful Barrington Philog on Broken Sword. And what I really want is for people who play a Broken Sword or a Revolution game to feel that they're going to get a classic score. And 
I have to say Pitstop and Alistair did an absolutely, in my opinion, brilliant job. They wrote huge amounts of music. Um, they were very passionate about the project. And what they then did is, is actually record it in Budapest um, and uh, with, with, with a live orchestra. Um, that was before COVID came along. Um, they needed to do the second half um, but and managed to do so with social distancing. Um, with a little bit done in Leeds. Um, what, what they do say is that um, in the UK we have some of the best musicians in the world, uh, and they love recording in the UK, which is which is great to hear. And um, produced an absolutely you know classic um, classic uh, theme tune. But like Broken Sword, I think the key to it, apart from you know the raw talent that these guys have and Alistair has for, for, for in this particular case, is to actually have a passion for the game. And how you're going to communicate, how the music communicates, which is exactly what, what you're getting to. It's, it's actually caring that the music is, is a way of enforcing and reinforcing the gameplay rather than just being there to, um, to support the story. And that's why there's so much music in, in, in there and there's so much music that responds, as you say, to the way that the game is progressing. And I'm delighted if, if you enjoyed the music, then, then that's absolutely fantastic. But that, that, you know, absolute hats off to, to Alistair and John uh, and all at Pit Stop. It was such a reward for solving a puzzle. Like, I knew I was going to get a new score or something. Uh, and it's lovely to hear it. It was just, some of it was overwhelming because you, you put the controller there and going, see, I'm not an idiot. <laughs> 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 but uh, to have that being uh, sort of celebrated by a, you know, a, a full uh, orchestra piece is lovely. Yes, yeah. I mean, I mean to go back to, to Jamie Sefton, uh, what he organised a couple of years ago was for a uh, an orchestra to actually play um, video game music. Um, this was in Leeds. And um, one of the pieces chosen was Broken Sword. And I have to say, I'd never heard it played by a live orchestra. And, you know, tears just well up in your in, in your eyes. Um, it, it's, it's extraordinary. I mean, there's, there's so much power that comes from a from a live orchestra. And of course, digital music is amazing and brilliant. But that human factor of of players actually playing the instruments just adds an extra dimension that's so, so moving. It's incredible. Yeah. Well, Beyond the Still Sky uh, by Revolution Software is out now on Apple Arcade, Linux, and Windows PC, I've noticed. Is that right? That's correct, yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I get that wrong, Charles. I was thinking very carefully, and, and, and I was going to work out how I could jump in and very politely correct you if you were wrong. But I don't need to, because you're absolutely right. Yay! Because like I said, I, I announced the platform of the game. We haven't announced that yet, and he got, got very agitated, not with me, <laughs> but you know, yeah, it's like. Uh, but thankfully, uh, my research is held up. Yay! Go me. Brilliant. Uh, <laughs> Charles, it's been wonderful having you on the show again. Well, thank you, Chris. And um, I, I'm going to have to go back and look at all of these things that uh, I, I said four years ago and try and work out whether I'd say exactly the same again. But but thank you for not embarrassing me by asking the, the same question and then comparing the answers both times and finding that actually they contradict each other horribly. Yeah, I wouldn't dare do that to any guest, least of all your good self. So, uh, But the, the invitation stands. Of course, you're welcome back again, uh, as is that alarm, uh, <laughs> uh, for uh, another sort of uh, tete-a-tete 
uh, to talk about whatever is next brewing under the uh, the uh, the bonnet of Revolution Software, whatever that may be. But in the meantime, thank you so, so much, Chris, and I shall look forward to it. Yes, hopefully it won't be quite so long. <laughs> we're fine within the, within the hour. We're good. No, 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 no. Sorry, I'm talking about years, not minutes. Oh yeah, good point. <laughs> You have been listening to the Sausage Factory podcast, part of the Cane and Rinse Collective. Support us for just two US dollars per month at patreon.com forward slash Cane and Rinse for early, extended and exclusive podcasts. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Twitch, YouTube and at our website, caneandrinse.com.